Hi everyone and welcome to Hit the Apex this week. It's a return to the European heartland for Formula 1 Round 5 of the Championship. Got plenty to discuss with Supercars and the World Endurance Championship as well last week. And we'll talk all things the Spanish Grand Prix as well. I'm Juad as always joined by Baden. And yeah, into the fifth round of the Championship already. We're back into the European heartland and Barcelona. It's always uh, a pivotal race in every Championship given the fact that it offers a true gauge for the first time where everyone is at. Yeah, as ever, you come to Spain and it's like the whole championship resets itself and a lot of teams you really see holding off on those upgrades. Um, they tend to just hold station, the, those flyaways, be a bit conservative and uh, as it stands, very evenly poised. So you come here and, I don't know, Spain, it's never been the most exciting event, but it, it just does offer, as you say, that gauge of really what we can expect for the balance of the season. Yeah, so we can up... Uh, we can expect a lot of upgrades from the teams coming this weekend. It's, of course, where the teams did all their pre-season testing as well. So it's probably, you know, one that, you know, they know off the back of their hands by now. And also um, we should see uh, everyone just get straight into it and try and get those new upgrades to work. So as far as the championship is concerned, yeah. So from last time out, Baku, that surprise result with Lewis Hamilton winning. Four points between it now with Hamilton jumping to the top of the table. Sebastian Vettel there in second and you remember there last year in uh, Barcelona these two were neck and neck in the race Hamilton eventually pipped Sebastian Vettel to that one so um it's a very close contest at the moment as far as both their cars are concerned will we see some more um wheel to wheel stuff between these two I hope so for this weekend Yeah, so going to Valtteri Bottas, he's been the more consistent driver, you could argue, this season of the two Mercedes guys. But we know with Lewis in the past that once he gets that uh, win under his belt or that good result, he gets his mojo back. Could that win in Baku, even though it was a surprise win for him, could that be what initiates his mojo for this season? And will we see him go on a run here or will we see Bottas um, use that, I guess, frustration and that disappointment that he had from that retirement to... Turn it into a win. Yeah, it turns so quickly. That's all you need—a little bit of, of luck, and before you know it, you're away. That slight bit of momentum. One one race, you could have it in the bag, or you could just uh, inherit a victory like Hamilton did, and, and then go on those really ubiquitous charges. You see Hamilton four or five races at a time when he rediscovers that mojo. So Ferrari will be wary. They'll really want to capitalise his time. The last. They've been caught a little bit short here and there, but they'll really just want to want to capitalise now and head to to Monaco, where dare we say, based on last season, they'll be favourites again. So if they can string together a couple of victories here, they're going to be really the the team to beat for the rest of the season. Yeah, Monaco next one up after this weekend, Barcelona. But um, speaking of Barcelona, it 
really uh, doesn't offer consistent results year in, year out. Now, we've seen over the last 13 years, we've had nine different winners. And before last year, there was an incredible run of drivers. Each year, we basically had a new winner going back to, I think, 2008 or 2009. So, um, yeah, the only multiple winners, I guess, of the current drivers, we've got Lewis Hamilton, two wins uh, with his second one last year. Kimi Raikkonen's won here twice for McLaren and for Ferrari. And, of course, Fernando Alonso, the home favourite as it were, uh, having one here for Ferrari and for Renault. Sebastian Vettel. We must add, it'll be the five-year anniversary of Alonso's last victory in F1. And yeah. We might, have, we might have celebrated last weekend in WEC, but when it comes to F1, it'll be very poignant memories again for him on home soil. Yeah, not a milestone that I guess he wants to celebrate, but one that we have to look to anyway. So, yeah, I didn't realise that it's been five years since his last F1 victory. So, And Sebastian Vettel, he's not really had the rub of the green here, you could say. He's only won this race once, and that was back in 2011. Um, he's had numerous pole positions, but, yeah, never seems to get the, the job done for the win. And I remember 2012 as well, wasn't a very good race for him. That's the one that Pastor Malinado and Fernando Alonso ended up duking out over 2013 as well. Fernando Alonso ended up winning that one, even though Red Bull had the dominant car. And then last year, I'm pretty sure they, Ferrari was on the pole position and didn't end up winning the race. Strategy-wise, Hamilton ended up pipping him. So, um, yeah, it's got to be one that Seb's going to have to tick the box this year and it'll fuel that championship charge, as you said, keeping up the consistency. Yeah, I think it's more about uh, substance over style we'll expect this weekend. It comes down to purely based on what we've had so far. It's been great to see that uh, intervention of safety go with nature taking its course, but it would be great just to get a mono-e-mono between Ferrari, Mercedes, and you never can discount Red Bull again, but just see pure strategy dictating that outcome, and it will really be uh, a, an appropriate barometer of where they lie when the, the results are unaffected. Well, speaking of Red Bull, will the ramifications from Baku spill over for this weekend as well? Um, of course, Verstappen's won here in 2016, that first race for Red Bull, first career win, and then Ricardo's not won here before. Um they had to make that public apology in front of the team, of course, at the factory, Milton Keynes. So, um, in the same vein as 2010, will we see much change? Will these two come together again, or are they going to play it a bit cautiously? Oh, as ever, internally and externally, they're two completely different contexts, and you can expect that the, the team is, is as much, if not more so, Max Verstappen's than it was previously. So... Uh, I think Daniel Ricciardo, as we mentioned last week, the marginalisation process is, is well underway and he's surely ramping up those negotiations with alternatives and I think he's really just got to strike out on his own and, and make his own luck because on that basis of uh, Baku where he was clearly the faster driver, apart from that, that one very odd outlap where he was uh, quite laughably overcut after spending 40-odd laps in Max Verstappen's wake, then he's just got to um, forget about um, whatever the, the strategy might be and just go and take take matters into his own hands. Yeah, just become a renegade essentially, essentially with that. So um, with that marginalisation, you'd hope that it doesn't affect his ability to win a race again this season. You know, Daniel Ricciardo's been 
pretty consistent as well so far. But again, just issues with the car or, you know, with his teammate is what's uh, plagued him as far as the points go as well. So, you know, no good result here could put him back in that contention. And people will say that Red Bull are not out of title contention, but it could be um, moves like that that we saw in Baku outcomes such as that that might take Red Bull out of the equation, which, again, you know, it's their fault, not anyone else's in that case. It's a little bit different than the past few seasons when Red Bull, at this point in the season, have already eliminated themselves from title contention just due to uh, not having the pace. This time, they've really been on the ballpark, but they've, especially in the Verstappen camp, not capitalised, and, and Ricardo uh, really unfortunate at Bahrain, and then we know what happened a fortnight ago. So for them, this is probably already shaping as last chance saloon they really need to make the most of whatever the potential is yeah well Verstappen I don't think has even reached 20 points yet this season so that's uh, given the fact that Red Bull have a race-winning car, that's pretty um, pathetic to look at as far as the points is concerned. So we'll see where Red Bull are come the race and everything. So as far as um, tyres go and strategy, Red Bull and Mercedes, they're going to be putting the emphasis on the medium tyre this weekend. As you'd expect from Mercedes, it's their favourite tyre. They spent all the testing on that tyre as well, which could make them pretty strong in the race. But given that the conditions are going to be much better than they were in testing, we saw last week weekend in Spain for the MotoGP at Jerez how hot it was if it's the same sort of weather this weekend in Barcelona then it could perhaps play into Ferrari's favor because they're bringing seven sets of super soft tires and those softer tires work better in the heat and we know Ferrari are the only team that can switch them on better out of the top three so that aggressive tire choice could work in their favor and we did see what happened at Bahrain the way that Vettel against all the odds, managed to hold on there, really. We thought he was a sitting duck, whether that was Bottas being a bit uh, bit meek, uh, not taking that opportunity, or otherwise Vettel just driving the wheels off. So I think uh, Ferrari, they, they do look as though they've mastered just those little nuances of the Pirelli a lot more than previous seasons when Mercedes just had that so-called silver bullet to every compound, every strategy. Yeah, because they had such an advantage anyway, it wouldn't have made much difference where the tyres were concerned. So now that we've got such a low, uh, such a little advantage now, or if not any advantage between those teams, little things like the tyres do make a big difference. So um, we'll see how that plays out. But yeah, it would be so much better than what it was over in testing. Remember, it was snowing um, and we had such terrible weather during the Barcelona test where I think one day was actually washed out altogether. So yeah, it'll be conversely different um, conditions there for them. So um, that's as far as the top three is concerned for Barcelona but upgrades I guess is going to tell who's the best uh, of the rest and you know that fourth best in the championship everyone's been talking about Haas at the moment but they're sitting uh, second last in the title in the constructors championship or I think third last at the moment that's on the account of them not scoring the points that their car sort of deserves well consider Well, a po- a Karen, yeah, well, 
equation. Well, when you consider Red Bull, how many points they've lost. If Haas had didn't lose those points, then they could certainly be up there. And I know you were pretty scathing as I was about Roman Grosjean last week or earlier this week, sorry. Um, but yeah, it was a po- genuine podium that went begging for them in Baku. So another top result. And Grosjean, of course, one of only two drivers that haven't scored any points this season either. So it's going to be a big race for them to, to cement that position as what they claim the fourth best car but Fernando Alonso certainly doesn't hope so because he's hoping that everyone else's upgrades fail that just I mean you wouldn't come out and say that in the media that oh I hope everyone else's cars just fail (laughs) so that would make them the fourth best but seriously though um Renault, McLaren, they've both got to make uh, improvements to catch up on where the Haas car is on a, on a, on paper, that is. When it comes to the standings, you've got to say, Renault have been quietly achieving and even Sainz got in on the act at Baku and they're really accumulating those consistent fifth, sixth or seventh and no one's really uh, given them much of a, of a rating. Yeah, but both drivers haven't um, finished in the points together since Melbourne, so I think if both drivers can score points on the day, it'll be pretty crucial and of course signs his home race and he finished fourth the best of fourth here a few years ago for Toro Rosso as well so it's a circuit that he'll love coming back to there he's just as big as Fernando Alonso is in in Spain so and Nico Hulkenberg as well has had some good results here in the past so they'll they can do well and then you know Fernando Alonso of course in the McLaren is always going to pull a rabbit out of the hat so being a bit more competitive than he's been over the last few years here I think with that home crowd behind him um, could be looking at you know Six, seventh, or even top five. And this talk about some radical front wing upgrade. What are we going to expect? Is it going to be something completely revolutionary, or just another damn Oh, I hope it's nothing in the way of Martin Whitmarsh's revolutionary car for 2013. But um, yeah, we're yet to see this front wing that they'll probably whip out in free practice one come Friday. So we'll see if that gives them any advantage. But yeah, it's those three teams: Renault, McLaren, and Haas that are going to be tight there. Force India already saying not to expect much from their upgrades coming this weekend. So what can we expect? You know, Sauber, they've been quietly achieving as well. Charles Leclerc with sixth over the weekend in Baku. Great result for them. I think best result they've had since 2015. So um, it'll be interesting to see where they are. Williams, a lot to talk about again with Williams. It seems they're in the headlines every week these days. But yeah, they're going to be hampered already by a three-place grid penalty to Sergei Sorotkin from Baku. Um, We'll touch on it in the digest a bit later about the appeal and everything that they did um, post that race. But uh, we get to see Robert Kubitzer in action during FP1 as well, which will be good for his first, I guess, um, in-season test with the Williams team and see uh, what his assessment of the car is and whether um, his input will be valued. I know you and I have both said that, yeah, you know, it'll be great to get his opinion on the car, especially in the middle of the season when the temperatures are all right as well. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, 
for work, but hopefully uh, return to here that he is at least able to be respectable. He can't ask for too much. Just he's got only so much to work with with that package. But yeah, you know, perhaps any feedback at this stage will be crucial to get a good gauge of where they exactly are. So um, it'll be interesting to see what that is and whether they can uh, sort of develop themselves out of the hole that they're in at the moment. So, um, but yeah, they scored points last time out in Baku, Lance Stroll with uh, eighth position in the end. So at least they're not going to finish the season without any points. Uh, neither of the teams are, but um, yeah, they've still got a long way to go, don't they? shake-up of, of the entire operation if they're serious about um, really long-term. It's been a, a long time coming, this trajectory. We remember that upswing when Martini came on board with Mercedes and we all thought, oh, here's, here's signs of um, going back to the glory days, but it never eventuated and now they're almost at, at um, one of its lowest ends at any time. That's true, and uh, we'll go straight into the digest here, talking about Williams again, and that protest that they had following Baku um, with the FIA was dismissed, um, and the penalty for Sergei Sorotkin stands. So I guess just smacks of desperation. You could probably. I barely even tuned into this protest. I was thinking, like, what's it even really for? Well, in it, so it was all a waste of time. Well, the fact that the FIA dismissed it on the grounds that they had no new evidence to produce um, meant that, yeah, it almost seems like spacks of desperation to save Sergei Sorotkin from starting, instead of starting P20 on the grid, starting three places back or whatever from it. So, um, it's, yeah, it just maybe goes to show you where Williams are at the moment. So the fact that um, they were saying that, oh, Alonso wasn't penalised for returning to the pits in an unsafe manner when he was on two wheels or um, the other clash that happened between uh, Alonso and then uh, Sergei Sorotkin and then there was another driver involved as well because the penalty for Sorotkin came because of the collision that he had with Sergio Perez on the first lap. Now, Sorotkin also came together with Alonso as well, which caused him to go onto two wheels. So um, the fact that they're saying that there was nothing done about that or something is another matter. So, yeah, I guess it's just a very complicated one. And as you said, you can't really make much of it. So it means that there's not really much to be made of it. No, it's just a bluster these days. 90% of it is just a team living in that hope that maybe to mask their own shortcomings, I'll, I'll go and put in these appeals and, and hope somebody uh, clearly doesn't know the regulations, but clearly there was nothing to see here and we move on. Yeah, we move on indeed. And to Mercedes, who are weighing up uh, a customer deal, as Toto Wolff has come out and said, um, looking at the partnership between Haas and Ferrari, um, how successful that's been this season. It's attracted a lot of unsavory attention and that's only because the fact that and as I say in my article that I'm about to publish later for tomorrow um, is that it's because they're finally getting some results on the board and if they were just meandering in the midfield and not scoring points then I'm sure no one would say anything but the fact that they're actually for the first time in their three-year tenure pretty competitive um, that's why we've getting all this attention and it's prompted Mercedes to think oh why don't we do the same thing with uh, a force India or a Williams yeah, you think really, as much as it's been resisted over the, the past couple of decades, um, again, you, you see F1 back in the 60s and 70s, it was all almost the one or two chassis amongst the entire grid with the 
the the manufacturer is there and then the bespoke engine essentially the Cosworth's there in this case it'd be a great cost-cutting measure in tandem with 2021's regulations whenever they'll be finalized but you can see for ferrari clearly they've got a good little um, dynamic with haas and now sauber's come online the last few months with that alpha association so i don't think there's any reason why mercedes after now they've been back in f1 in its own right for for almost a decade to pursue its own relationship well the fact that they're actually considering it and talking about it publicly means uh one thing and that's a long-term future perhaps for them in the sport you know you wouldn't be contemplating this and then look to exit come 2021 so it's positive to see and then the key word to take out of it from what Toto Wolf um, told the F1 website was the fact that um, creating synergy and I think synergy is a key word as I say in the article is that it's a word that's going to be popping up a lot come 2021 and in the build-up to 2021 creating synergies between teams well, the, well, don't say it. Oh well, don't say it too much. But um, yeah, compared to you know, uh, w- w- let's say uh, for example, manufacturers and whatnot, and then having those uh, little teams around them, it's good for blooding young drivers, engineers. Um, it's also good for development as well. So you know, they can learn a lot by having their parts on a certain car. So let's say um, Haas having gearbox and suspension from the ferrari it might be something that ferrari can learn from as well at the same time or within i guess the confines of the regulations i guess that was the big argument around haas and ferrari is that oh they actually literally just copied the car from last year but the fia did the investigation said no everything's perfectly legal they're doing it within the boundaries um which means that everyone else can do the same thing as well yeah it's a a time on a tradition of uh, when you see another team whoever a customer onto a good thing if they they feel it's too time consuming they'll appeal it and if that's thrown out then it's up to them really to respond and in this case they've got nothing to to lose if there's going to be no clarification that there was a loophole and it's been closed off they're continuing with it then mercedes really um it's great for them just to get that research that reference point again i'm sure ferrari Again, as much as Haas benefits from Ferrari's input, Ferrari does get a lot out of uh, what Haas might develop on those alternative strategies. Strategies, but also drivers too. And you're saying that, yeah, like if Grosjean doesn't see out the season, it's most likely he won't be there next season. We'll get, you know, Antonio Giovinazzi, the young driver. They've also got Santino Ferrucci as well, which is another Ferrari Academy driver as their reserve driver for this year. So, um, yeah, it benefits everyone but I guess <coughs> when you look at it from a Williams perspective uh, an independent perspective where they're in the sport to win championships like they have in the past they wouldn't want this because under that sort of customer deal you can't really what do you call it go for championships but when you look at Williams predicament is it I guess the only thing that they can do to survive at the moment you could say but the thing is not stay on that trajectory forever get to the stage where they can get on their feet again they've got the resources and then uh become independent all that talk really about long term whether it um it does want to be absorbed by someone we've seen all those um individuals buying out minority um stakes and shares within the company since it did go public about a decade ago and you do wonder where in five years time it will be whether it wants to accept that the way the sport's headed or remain stubborn and um, 
uh, as we just mentioned before, just uh, continue on this sinking trajectory it's been on for, for really, if we're honest, about two decades now since its last title. Well, yeah, so it's just an alternative way of trying to save them. If they, if they want to be saved, that's the question. So that'll be an interesting one to follow, of course, and um, Toto Wolf even saying that it could be done as early as 2019, having that sort of alliance ready to go um, with one of the other teams on the grid. So another thing for 2021, um, Ross Braun saying that he wants to put an end to grid penalties and not the the gearbox penalties. That's It's the power unit penalties that have been confusing everyone for the last few years when McLaren and Honda were taking 50-place grid penalties between their, their drivers. So, yeah, to have that abolished by 2021, it's a big step, but um, perhaps one that they're willing to take. Just in line with the already for 2019, those technical regulations, just the simplification, streamlining, and making it as something that that most people can understand without dumbing the, the regs down completely, just so you get to a point where you're not scratching your head for two hours after a session or after a, a little incident and thinking, oh, will they maybe apply some kind of penalty here for next race? Will it be this many positions, da-da-da, and having to consult multiple different little uh, parts of the, the rule book? It really is logical, and Ross Braun's the man who, who knows how to put <coughs> a, a good alternative there that, that everyone will be able to accept. Yeah, you know, the grid penalties haven't really stopped anyone, as we've said in the past, from changing those multiple power units. I guess if they want to penalise people, then perhaps uh, find have some kind of financial penalty for doing it um, uh, multiple times in a season. I mean, I, I guess for someone like Honda at that point who were stuck in a little phase where they needed to change those power units because of reliability problems, I mean, um, uh, you know, it might get to the stage where, yeah, give them a financial penalty, but don't take away from the racing season you think oh well they're really on here for something and then it's like oh five positions ten positions there goes that opportunity well that was jensen button monaco last year when in his one-off race um when he came back to sub for Fernando Alonso, he qualified ninth, but then got relegated to the back of the grid for grid penalties. So that was pretty annoying and frustrating to see from that perspective, where it does take away from uh, results at times. So, yeah, I think uh, again, um, no need to rush it, but I think twenty twenty one that's that cut off point where get everything right in the interim. We already see twenty nineteen, which was quite a surprise for for those regulations to be pushed through on the. The technical front, but uh, I want to play the long game. Just make sure that it's a really um, smooth uh, future. Well, twenty twenty one will be when Formula One is truly Liberty Media's Formula One. You could say because it's when they get to shape the rules and uh, shape the landscape for what the future will look like. So we hope it's a bright one. Anyway, let's go into supercars now. And um, the Perth Super Sprint was on last weekend. We'll go over the key talking points, I guess. And um, Scott McLaughlin, again, clean sweeping the weekend. He did it in Phillip Island. He did it in out west. And that was including the Sunday race where he started from 19th on the grid and still came back to win the race. That was pretty epic to see. Holden's and Triple Eight's court uh, the last couple of 
weekends. He's made it his title to lose on the current balance. You think that he just looks like he's um, gaining strength with each race and just so clinical the way he goes about it. Clinical, yes, but at the same time, I guess it's not over till it's over, as I emphasised over the weekend, saying that he was in this position last year too, but then lost it all on the final day of the championship in Newcastle. So. He's definitely, and he's definitely learned a lot, and you can see it in the way he's racing as well. So from P19 on the grid, he was able to uh, out-strategize the other drivers with the help of Ludo Lacroix, but also on track as well. He just looked so mature out there, and he wasn't showing those, um, uh, you know, problems that someone who's uh, going after the championship for the first time would show, or, you know, Max Verstappen, for example. So McLaughlin really showing he is the complete driver at the moment out there, and it's going to take a lot for him to be stopped by uh, the guys at Triple Eight or anyone else who's got designs on taking this championship. And it must be said he's also highlighting uh, Fabian Coulthard's shortcomings, certainly this season, and there'd really be an incumbent on the, the Kiwi there to, to get his act together because they'll be, um, as we, I think, mentioned last week, they, they won't be sitting around for too long, a DGR TP being happy if he's not uh, consistently in the top five with... McLaughlin, if he can come from the rear of the grid to a victory, they'll be expecting similar from Coulthard, and they'll be sizing up a Mostert or someone if, if Mostert, uh, in a, uh, a Tickford, which we'll emphasise in a moment, they're still probably not where they want to be. He'll be looking at his own options. Certainly so, and I guess um, <clears throat> moving it on, another comeback, great comeback drive on the Sunday was of uh, Craig Lowndes, the master of Perth, who's got the most wins of anyone at that circuit, but he was 25th on the grid, on the last row of the grid, and he came back to take a podium at the end of the day, so great form from Lowndes too. Um, I guess, again, best of the Triple Eight guys, you could say, even though um, uh, they had the pole position, the front row lockout, um, the Red Bull cars, uh, Win Cup and Van Gisbergen on the Sunday, and then Van Gisbergen a podium on on Saturday, a circuit which he doesn't usually do too well at at Perth, um, so that was a good result for him. But yeah, Lowndes really in this hunt, you could say, for the championship. He's sitting fourth, he's about 150 points behind, and he's got a car under his belt now that he knows he's confident with, that he can win races and get on the podium. So if he can keep this up, then yeah, he might definitely be a player come the end of the season. Yeah, just that dynamic with his new engineer, he finally seems sorted and has that confidence. You you mentioned since uh, Tasmania, he's looked really rejuvenated. I think um, just that consistency uh, last year was uh, very um, um, characteristic of uh, some of his performances. But this time around, he's almost at the moment their strongest driver, you, you could say, across the balance of the season, just when it comes to converting it on, on race day and if you can, you can drag another win or two especially before the mid-season break then and suddenly he's going to be legitimately someone after everyone had really written him off after last season to, to be in that hunt. Well, it was a big year for him to respond, really. It would be the gauge as to whether we'd see him for a few more years um, after this or would he finally call time on his uh, illustrious career, you could say, that he has had, even though championship-wise he hasn't uh, had the success that maybe Jamie Wincarp or Mark Scaife have had. Um, he's had you know, more than a century of wins under his belt, um, six Bathurst titles as well to his name so yeah he's got a lot of accolades in that career which has spanned you know more than three decades now almost well it'll be three decades by the end of the the, de the this decade you could say 
Yeah, time doesn't stand still for anybody, but it's just good to see that he's justifying that a continued presence, really, and no reason why he shouldn't go on. Then for 2019, that talk of reassessing after this season, but I think that he, he still belongs full-time as long as he delivers these kinds of things. Yeah, that's the... <coughs> I guess that's the important thing to consider. Like, you don't want to keep racing or playing professional sport past your use-by date. So as long as he's got that competitive nature still about him and the car under his belt is still um, strong, then, yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, we could see him going for a, a 10 years after that, perhaps. Okay. Race into his... Maybe not till he's 60, but... Oh, know, well, maybe, maybe yeah, maybe into where he's 50 or something. So who knows? But uh, anyway, you mentioned Tickford before, and they responded this weekend and got a podium on Saturday with Mark Winterbottom. It was a great race from Frosty, apart from the fact that he didn't get past Fabian Coulthard when he should have. That could have potentially put him in contention for the win. But yeah, they played the strategy game and ended up coming out second with a quick car at the end of the race, but then went back to being nowhere on Sunday with none of their cars finishing in the top 10, which was uh, disappointing. They found themselves, all the big names from Saturday, Winterbottom and Mostert and also uh, Cam Waters, they found themselves eliminated um, in Q1, or I think it was Waters and Winterbottom who were eliminated in Q1, having been forced to, to do that first round of qualifying, and we'll go over it to elimination qualifying in a second but yeah Tickford you know I guess it was positive to see them on the podium on Saturday but then you know going back to where they were on Sunday it's just like well we need some consistency from you guys especially when you've got one Ford team out the front like setting the world on fire. Yeah real flash in the pan stuff and at a time when uh, I guess they'll be uh, optimistic being collaborators in the, the Mustang alongside DJR TP, they really need to uphold that consistency um, to impress. I guess Ford now it's back in the game, and uh, that talk of a, a Mostert, surely um, DJR there, they would be looking at someone like Mostert there to, to slide in alongside uh, McLaughlin if Tickford really don't get the its act together. That next season will be quite crucial. I think 2019, they need to be back to where they were. That, around that 2013, 14, 15. Yeah, exactly. Um, they were quite strong when the FGX first came in in 2015 and then 2016 it was pretty difficult to defend their uh, driver's title. So, yeah, since then they've looked pretty listless, you could say. But um, going to elimination qualifying, it was good to see that format back in action over the weekend. And then on Sunday for race 12, that's where it proved uh, to happen deliver the biggest surprises with some of those big scalps as we said McLaughlin was uh didn't make it uh well what do you call it at the end of the final practice session he was outside that top 10 Craig Lowndes was outside the top 10 then we had Winterbottom we had Waters and some other big scalps there so I guess what it's done is it's made qualifying a lot more exciting it's put more emphasis on that um final practice session as well before qualifying so um whether you uh and it's pretty unforgiving too because if you have to go through q1 to get into the next qualifying sessions then you've got to use up an extra set of tires as well so it's playing the strategic game and a lot of factors to consider and it's a format that i definitely like to see at other circuits as well Just that incentive of the motivation there, whether you want to um, 
conserve tyres, maybe start somewhere in the midfield or just take a punt, getting it right, coming in and then knowing that uh, no one else will, will best you. It, it's really one of those games where you just got to intuit and go with your gut. And I think that, that calls a lot of people out. When you see maybe over a, a few laps, um, they, they really switch tyres on, feel comfortable. Other ones thrive in the pressure and the, the ones that can't, they're found out pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly, as we saw then on the Sunday. So, yeah, it was only brought in for Tasmania and for Perth, those small circuits where it's hard to have everyone on track trying to share the same space of real estate. So um, if we can see it at other circuits, it would be great to see as well, just um, really make qualifying a lot more competitive. So it will be interesting to see. But uh, the final point to end on, I guess, is uh, the talks of the Chevrolet Camaro and whether that's coming to Australia now with the Ford Mustang on its way for next year. Um, HSV have come out over the weekend and said that they're going to begin assessing the feasibility with the General Motors to see whether it would be uh, feasible to have that Camaro car here. So the Camaro road car itself is coming to Australia with HSV, which is owned by the Walkinshaw family, um, to be doing the conversions to right-hand drive to make it drivable in Australia. But with that, you know, could Walkinshaw with their partners Andretti and then United Auto Sports do a tie-up with GM to race the uh, Camaro whilst the other Holden teams have the Commodore still on hand? It's looking increasingly likely, and there's no reason why HSV shouldn't pursue this arrangement since uh, being cut loose by Holden. That'd be a great spectacle and a, a good uh, reference point between the two, and perhaps gives Holden something to think about whether it would want to just uh, have, have all its teams essentially run under that Chevrolet badge since they would be uh, given those different monikers there. But whether it would, would be or 2020 when the Camaro did enter the sport. It's one of those things that they probably don't want to rush it as much as Mustang. It might seem like they're coming in quickly. It's more to do with the fact that, that uh, the Falcon we did allude to last week has long seen its day, whereas that uh, latest iteration, so-called Commodore Opel, has just really made its debut. Yeah, so um, the Camaro, you know, they could assess how the Mustang fares next season and then because it's a completely different body type, the coupe uh, two-door thing where they've got to make a lot of adjustments to fit that supercar's control chassis as well. So they'll probably be looking at what Ford do with the Mustang as well as part of its feasibility and then assess whether it will be right to come into the sport. And it'd be great news for Walkinshaw too and HSV because um, it means they become a sort of quasi-factory operation once again like they were as the uh, factory Holden racing team in the past before that uh, those rights went over to Triple Eight, so seeing a bit of a competition between the Holden or the GM camp as well would be great. Camaro versus Commodore, and then of course uh, GM versus Ford. Yeah, it's just that uh, interim period where supercars again, like F1, probably has for a little while, not knowing what it wants to do with itself, and we're starting to see um, the other side of that emerging, and it's exciting times when when it does. Um, whether it's in 12 months or 24 it does look like it knows what it wants to be now yeah exactly so at least you know even if it's just the Mustang and the Commodore that's on the grid or whatever Nissan do for the future you know um, we've got a bright future ahead for supercars but yeah the fact that they're assessing 
to bring another car into the competition too is pretty positive to see. So, um, yeah, great stuff there from Perth over the weekend. We also had the World Endurance Championship kick off, the super season, which will go um, from Spa, as we had last weekend, to Le Mans next year. So two 24 hours of Le Mans in one season, which will be mouth-watering for the likes of Fernando Alonso, who wants that win there. But, uh, yeah, he and his number eight Toyota crew uh, turned that pole position into his maiden win in the World Endurance Championship. An easy one, you could say it was. Um, the fact that uh, they really didn't have much competition until the end where that sister Toyota, the number seven car, which got disqualified um, from qualifying and then started from the pit lane, came back to finish, but... Um, finished second, not too far off the lead car, but the fact that Toyota had made the call for both drivers to hold the formation at the end of the race uh, meant that, yeah, they wanted Alonso to win that one and get off to a good start. Yeah, it seemed as though that hype of maybe some competition and ultimately Toyota looked quite comfortable out the, the front there and just a relief for, for Alonso more than anything that he, uh, he's able to, to see that he's made the right call here and he should be able to get some some satisfaction out of his racing after oh, such a long time. Well, it's so good to see him smiling again, and I've just forgotten the last time that I saw him on a podium spraying champagne. Uh, well, it was Hungary 2014, the last time he did that, but yeah, to see him genuinely excited and everything and holding the winner's trophy, no matter what, like it could be for go-karting for all I care, but just to see Alonso win something after all these years of pain is uh, pretty satisfying, you could say, but had a good race all round, all round the uh, field actually with LMP2, the win being taken by G-Drive and also the uh, Formula E championship leader Jean-Éric Verne winning that one there. Um, had a nasty crash or a couple of nasty crashes actually over the weekend. The big one um, at Radalon uh, was Pietro Fittipaldi in his LMP1 car um, during qualifying just... Uh, went into the wall pretty hard. He ended up with broken legs and was in hospital and he's still recovering. So we wish he gets well soon with that. And also Harry Ticknell in the GTE Pro Ford um, conked out at Eau Rouge. It was a 29G crash that he had, but he claimed after the race that he only was le left with a bit of bruising and that was it. So um, the GTE car protecting the driver a bit better than... Um, the crush that Fittipaldi had so yeah that was some of the nasty stuff there but also GTE the uh, winners there were the 66 Ford um, being Porsche and Ferrari there they're talking about doing balance of performance again because Aston Martin BMW they weren't as competitive as they would have liked to have been but uh, I guess that always happens in the GTE class starting to, with some of those manufacturers entering in recent seasons, not to mention Ford there and, and Ferrari also being competitive, and, and now Porsche has scaled back um, its commitment from the 
the top tier, they're taking a lot more seriously. Yeah, so it puts a lot of emphasis on that GT Championship. And then in the GTEM class, we had the old spec Aston Martin Vantage taking the honours. They were 1-2 in that race. And then some of the highlights, I guess, um, we have Aussie Matty Campbell, who was um, in the Enduros last year with Shane Van Gisberg, and he finished fourth in class um, in port with the Porsche. And then Alex Davison, also brother of Will, racing in GTEM too for Porsche as well. And he was P7 for the race. So it'll be great to see those guys have a crack at Le Mans and go for the class win but um yeah that trio of uh, Paul Dallalana, Pedro Lamy and Matthias Lauder I guess they're the masters of GTEM at this stage and looking for another win at Le Mans next time out Yeah, Le Mans going to be that big one to look forward to. And it was actually interesting hearing Alonso talk about this week, his uh, regret of not being able to have driven at Le Mans in 2015, you know, that offer that he had on the table um, for 2015 to drive with Porsche and then seemingly blocked by the uh, partnership between McLaren and Honda. They didn't want him to race, unfortunately, um, uh, which was, you know, when you look at the result there, Nico Hulkenberg ended up getting the drive and ended up winning the race on debut as well. So shoulda, coulda, woulda, but at least he gets his chance this year. And then, of course, next year too, because there'll be two Le Mans in this super season for the WEC. And there's no clash between races as well. Le Mans not going to clash with uh, Baku or whatever like it has in the past. And, of course, um, yeah, the Indy 500 will with Monaco. But, uh, yeah, Alonso's not doing that this year. So um, that's wrapping up our World Endurance Championship little segment. But uh, to end the podcast, as always, sporting moment of the week. What's caught your eye? What was your favourite moment across the world of sport? Probably caught me on the, the hop here. There probably hasn't been a great deal that has gone on. Uh, you know, MotoGP had some um, carnival theatrics, you could say, that race, but there was nothing truly riveting about that outcome. But I don't know, Collingwood, another win, uh, another win on the road and a resilient win with a few injuries. It's always good to, to get one there, keep the, um, the season on course, but hopefully Oh, I'm sort of the same, really. I haven't really, uh, even though I've been... Let's say the Cowboys for you, surely. Cow- yeah, that was a great win, I guess, on uh, Saturday night with against the Panthers out here at Bathurst as well. So a win on the road, and we're playing again tonight with the West Tigers at Leichhardt, which will be an interesting one. So hopefully we can win that. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm like you. I, I've watched a lot of sport over the last seven days, but nothing really grabbed my attention or shocked me or whatever or really got me genuinely excited so um hopefully we have a bit more to talk about next week as far as that's concerned but yeah MotoGP quickly um Mark Marquez winning that one and then we had the three-way crash between Pedrosa Lorenzo Davizioso which could be pretty crucial for Davizioso being in the championship hunt so um yeah and apart from that the supercars on the weekend that was about it so yeah I guess Spanish Grand Prix is one to look forward to every year so hopefully we've got plenty to talk about as far as that's concerned and other news too over the next seven days. Yeah, 
is so the world turns. Sometimes it's a bit quieter. Other times you have a, a year's worth of events in a very... Oh, yeah. We need, we need another scandal to happen to talk about, that's for sure. <laughs> it's always seems, it always seems a case if some kind of scandal happens and there's everyone's on, on the heels talking. But anyway, that wraps it up for today's podcast. Um, thanks for tuning in. We'll uh, join you on the other side of the Spanish Grand Prix and uh, have a good weekend.